Welcome to the Fear Theory Podcast, brought to you by EFB Advocacy. EFB means excellent from the business. I'm your host, John Fury, joined by my two colleagues, John Easton, the E, Adam Belmar, the B. Uh, happy Hanukkah to all our Jewish friends. Uh, this is day four, Adam. Happy Hanukkah to you. Well, thank you very much. Did you get any uh, gifts for your kids? Um, you know what? I'm not with them all the time because I live with their mother, but I did get them some fun stuff, and we're shirt with them this week. Oh, fantastic! Uh, also, last Sunday was the first, was Advent, so for Catholics mm-hmm. out there, our Catholic friends, this is definitely the beginning of the holiday season. John Eason. Yes, sir. Right. I'm excited. Uh, I will say that my daughter Molly, she's six. She's completely bouncing off the walls, waiting for Santa. It's a little bit hard to manage. It's yeah. an exciting time of the year. Sure um, is. For kids who are a little bit older, your kids a little bit older, they have that same excitement for Christmas. Uh, it's a little more managed, managed. excitement. Not, not, yeah. not as exciting. Not, not quite off the rails. Yeah. What about back the, on the rails? What about the Belmar boys? Are they kind of excited? No, they're, they, they're, just, they're sort of. Spoiled year round, so so it's uh, every day's a holiday. Every day's a holiday in the Belmar House. Fantastic. Let's get to the theories. Uh, Theory one: It's a Wonderful Life. Official Washington was mourning the loss of George H. W. Bush, a man who had a remarkable legacy as president. Um, He was a one-term president, the last president not to win re-election. But, you know, all of Washington coming together, they see this guy in the rearview mirror and they think, my gosh, he accomplished so much. And he was a great dad, uh, a great human being, a great friend. Um, Adam Belmar, what is the legacy of George H.W. Bush? You know, I think there are a lot of legacies uh, of George H.W. Bush. Um, One of them that people are starting to talk a little bit more about right now is his impact on our society with respect to the Americans with Disabilities Act which was profound. But here in Washington over the last couple of days, there has been a a focus on the gentle, gentlemanly, statesmanlike nature with which he carried himself and lived his life, and the model that that showed for what our politics can be like and how successful we can be with some decorum and dignity, and I think that's what's brought so many people around the country together around their televisions this week, John. And uh, John Easton, thinking about that kinder, gentler George H.W. Bush, the contrast with Donald Trump is really pretty simple, right? I mean, it's pretty overwhelming how the contrast is. Yeah, and who knows? I think that the the media has done a, a, a nice job in general of not not really focusing on the current president and and rightly so there's really no reason to it's not about him and i think that the bush family did a nice job of of all the planning that went into this and the lineup at the national cathedral uh it was a really really special funeral service wasn't it and I went home. I couldn't watch it yesterday because I was actually at a different funeral. But I, I went home last night and I watched the thing, the, the whole uh, coverage from start to finish. And I think that part of what uh, it has made us all do is, is reflect on uh, why we uh, view the presidency the, the way we do, what it means, what the American presidency means to all of us. It certainly did for me. And, and I think the coverage was interesting, too, in that – it did focus a lot on what you both have talked about, about his George H.W. Bush's character. There's much more about that was said and stories told about that than 
than his policy uh, initiatives of some of his successes and failures in politics. It was much more about him, the man, which I really appreciated. Well, yeah, and I, I think that that's the proper coverage. When you get to the actual accomplishments, it's probably a little bit more uh, dicey. Some people didn't think the accomplishments were that great. If you're a conservative, you didn't really love some of the expansion of government that he signed. Uh, but everyone could agree that he was a man of high character. I'm fascinated, uh, Adam Belmar, about this idea of George H.W. Bush and the sense of noblesse oblige, the fact that he was kind of the last remaining of the old Protestant establishment that kind of binded this country together. And he's, his passing is kind of an end of an era uh, in many ways. Um, do you have any good stories about George H.W. Bush? Well, I do have a couple, and I'm happy to share them with you all and, and our audience today. Um, my story uh, as, as a lover of, of the Bush family starts when I was a young kid. Uh, I want to show you this picture. This picture was taken in early January of 1989. This was right before George H.W. Bush was inaugurated 41st president of the United States. I was a young kid. Uh, my parents uh, had purchased this house uh, that uh, President Bush used to live in and the Bush family used to live in. He was uh, the occupant of this house when he was director of the CIA in the 1970s. And I was just overwhelmed uh, at his generosity with his time, how much he was admired by the people uh, that I knew and were close to me and my family. And uh, it was very special, beginning of, of sort of an eye-opening of politics for me. Um, I went on later in my life to be a journalist. We've talked about this before at ABC News. It was Christmas time, 2006. I went to um, uh, Houston, Texas to do an interview with Barbara Bush and George H.W. Bush. Um, and they were talking about their lifelong commitment to the Salvation Army. And it was just one of those points of light that the president would talk about. And it was something that was really important to them, giving back and promoting charitable works. Uh, and I really enjoyed that trip. It was just me doing this interview. It was for uh, the other George that I worked for, George Stephanopoulos, and I was very proud of that. But it wasn't long after that that uh, I was tapped by his son, George W. Bush, 43rd president, to, uh, to come and join his communications team as deputy communications director. And during my time in the White House, um, like so many folks, I got a chance to sort of see 41 coming and going. I wasn't in the room when they were talking or anything like that, but um, I'd be in the Roosevelt Room or other places where I'd see the elderly former, former president coming. But towards the end of the, the presidency, I uh, had an opportunity uh, to spend time with George H.W. Bush again in the White House. This photo was taken the final days of his son's presidency. So I'd first come to see him in the days before his own inauguration, and the last time I shook hands with him was on the, the final days of his son's presidency. We, we did something that I don't think people are aware of. We've never seen it before. Um, this picture uh, was from that very same day. It's 
both presidents, former presidents, with uh, presidential historian uh, Richard Norton Smith, and it was a two-hour interview that I produced that Smith conducted with father and son in the foyer of the White House on the day before Barack Obama uh, took the office in the House. And I've never seen it air anywhere, um, but in all of my days, I've been fascinated with in an effort to serve the Bush family in our country, and I was particularly touched uh, with all the warm emotion and stories and uh, just be able to share a little bit of what he meant to me. Uh, John Easton, have you had any kind of interactions with the, the, the President H.W. Uh, Bush with, when you worked in the Senate uh, um, in your in your career, long career? No, not really, because uh, he really, I, I came in with um, Senator Smith uh, when uh, uh, this would have been 1996 and 97, so uh, not so much. It was Bill Clinton era. So, yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, I, I do think that, uh, and, and I think that's a fascinating picture. And I think that when we're long gone and the listeners are long gone, that I think that this forty-one and forty-three will be a fascinating story, yeah. just like the Adams father and son is a fascinating story. And it'll be written long after we're gone. It'll be studied, and it'll be there'll be documentaries, and it'll live on. And I and I just think that. As I've reflected on a lot of the the funeral, the coverage, what what strikes me, well, one, you know, you have a lot of conversations with friends, with colleagues, and one in particular, I'd get texts from friends, uh, particularly in Oregon, and one struck me as uh, beyond the others, and that was um, a, a friend of mine from high school who served in the Gulf War. And he just said, and I, I don't, I, as far as I know, he's a pretty loyal Democrat, and he just said, I served under uh, President Bush uh, in Desert Storm, and I thought he was great at doing his job. And that's it. Just really, I had to pause and just reflect on that for a while, and it just that meant a lot. Uh, a completely different role. You have those who who served in the White House, and there are tons of them on TV, commenting on their experiences with uh, George H. W. Bush, and they're all excellent. But I thought that was really a a good one, but I think that not everybody can identify with George H. W. Bush. The background of privilege and uh, the patriarch of the family, uh, just the blue blood uh, upbringing. But I think a lot of people can identify and with and admire and aspire to uh, this man's loyalty and capacity for friendship throughout his entire life and his resume. So when, when former Senator Alan Simpson yesterday said there should just be an L on his epitaph for loyalty, um, you know, I, I gave a, a eulogy at my dad's um, funeral and, and, and talked a lot about that. He was, a, he, was a, he was a coach. He was an incredibly loyal and devoted father and husband. And, and, it, and a lot of that came home to me as well. It's just an incredible way to live a life. And, and when we're sitting here talking about his loyalty and his deep, authentic friendships, that is how you want to be remembered. Well, he had uh, been in Washington. He's a Washingtonian, even though he uh, was born in the Northeast in Maine, and then he went down to uh, Texas to kind of make his millions, although I think he had family money, to, mm-hmm. which is always nice to start with family money. And then he had these deep relationships in Washington. And so he, you know, the, the thing about the Simpson story is they're both sons of uh, senators. So, and that, you know, that in many ways that, that's kind of a nice thing. Uh, it's also something that, um, you know, 
people outside of Washington kind of rebelled against. Um, and they rebelled against it. And I remember working for Bob Michael, who had been a long-term minority leader, uh, had worked very closely with the president when uh, on, on the Gulf War, uh, was part of the budget summit. Matter of fact, I started drinking coffee during the budget sum of 1990, where uh, Newt Gingrich rebelled against uh, the, the Bush tax increases. And um, it was it really kind of sh- charted the course uh, for a different type of Republican Party. If you think of George H.W. Bush, he really set up the world we live in, um, you know, with international trade agreements, NAFTA, uh, this idea of uh, having a uh, post-Soviet Union trying to keep every, the peace there, um, uh, the idea of, uh, of really free trade and free enterprise, uh, and uh, much less of a um, uh, reliance on hard borders. And so you have Donald Trump who comes up, and, you know, if, if uh, George Bush was an internationalist, Donald Trump is a nationalist. Uh, if George Bush liked immigration, Donald Trump dislikes immigration. If George Bush was genteel and kinder and gentler, Donald Trump is anything but. And so we have this, you know, Bush setting up this world and Trump kind of coming around and, and, and trying to crash it down. And so it's a fascinating kind of part of our history where this all plays out. But there is the fascinating. The other thing that's interesting about George Bush and this whole funeral was how um, everyone is nostalgic for this guy and everyone kind of loves him. And I was talking to a friend of mine who produces Fox News and it has gone through the, the, the charts, the ratings. The ratings, they, they're following every minute of his, of his funeral every step of the way because of the sense of the George, we're missing something when someone like him goes, goes on. Yeah, Actually, yeah. Like, and the fact that, that the current president was there, very, very important. I agree. And, and the Bush family did that just right. Uh, he didn't need a speaking role, but he needed to be there. I, I, think, I think it's right. Um, I think it's a really good point, John. And it's especially because of what happened with the McCain funeral where it was just kind of in your in your face. Yes. And this is this is a different thing. I, one last point on on the Bushes is you know, we don't have a royalty in this country, but the Bushes are kind of royalty. And as George H.W. Bush was the you know, almost the king of the Bush clan. And now, you know, you have his son obviously. And the irony is the Prince Charles was here, right? And so they know about royalty in the UK. We, we don't really love royalty, although I think that the Bushes on the Republican side and the Kennedys on the Democratic side are kind of our, our corollary to the, to the royalty. And this was, you know, a king going, going down. Mm-hmm. That's a fascinating time. Anyway, um, theory two, 2020. As we think about the Bushes, we think about the Bush funeral, you look in the crowd, you, say, you see many people who want to take Donald Trump out. I throw a couple names out there. Uh, Michelle Obama, maybe running. Um, maybe not. Probably she said no, but she'd be a formidable candidate if she did run. Hillary Clinton, never know if she's going to want to run, run again. Joe Biden says uh, to the media last week that he's the most qualified person to take on uh, President Trump. You have uh, Al Gore in the uh, You never know if Al Gore might run and want to run again. You never know. But there are other people in the audience. Um John Easton, thinking about the 2020 field, it is crazy how many people think they want to run. And you know what? What's happened is that Donald Trump has made this happen because if Donald Trump could win an election, anybody could win an election. Mm-hmm. And I think that people are like, I'm going to go for it because who knows? I might some lightning might strike, strike in a bottle. Why don't you handicap the field for us right now? 
Well, and and, uh, and that includes uh, non-politicians who could get in. And I don't know, you know, people talk about Oprah. I don't think she will. But you get a vote and you get a vote right. and you get a vote. But to your point about Donald Trump getting in, that, that includes non-politicians. We'll see with, uh, what uh, happens there. But I would say you kind of have uh, a couple tiers here of Democrats. I mean, remember something. In 20 – it's actually 2015, not 16 – there were 16 Republican candidates running, officially running for president. We're going to top that probably with Democrats running. Right. Tier one, I would say you would have to put for, – for me anyway, you'd have to put uh, – Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden, and Elizabeth Warren up there. And I say that because each one of them has a brand. And I do think you you have to have a brand in this day and age, a political brand that you can fundraise from, that, that you can really get out there. The media is paying attention to you. It's important, and they have it. I would say, dear two, you're probably talking about Beto O'Rourke, uh, the, the failed candidate, Senate candidate in Texas. You're, you're probably talking about Kamala Harris by virtue of being a California senator enormous constituency that she has um and then i would say next to that you probably have um terry mcauliffe i know that sounds kind of crazy the, the former governor of virginia but that is a purple state that he, shouldn't sound crazy he is a machine yeah. of a fundraiser and a political operative so you have to kind of put him in the mix honestly beyond that i know that hillary obviously if hillary were to were to, were to jump in that would change the dynamics completely but other than that, the rest are sort of like, we'll see if, if uh, any of them can create any traction. Adam Bellar, can a white man win the Democratic nomination? Yes. And what do you, what do you think? I, you know what, I, I agree with uh, a lot of, of the names that, that John just spoke about and the way that he characterized them. Um, I, I am not sure who it could be or would be. I, I, was, I took note that Michael Avenatti said he wasn't going to. <laughs> so that, that sort of changed the – it was rebalancing. Um, Deval Patrick, not a white man, but a former governor of Massachusetts uh, with considerable political acumen, said he too would not stand for election uh, to the presidency or to, for the nomination in 2020. So who's in, who's out? It's a parlor game. We'll follow it. But I don't know. But I don't I – don't, uh, I don't rule out anything um, uh, with regard to race, gender, creed, or television network affiliation. So, so um, you think about this, and when you grow up, the old cliche in America is even you can grow up to be president. Now, when George H.W. Bush was president, you know, was born, you know, everyone kind of assumed that someone like that would be the president because he came from a small group of people that typically became president. You know, it was, it was someone from that small kind of social class. Mm -hmm. But with Barack Obama, he really kind of shattered that. Someone with a name Barack Obama from mixed parentage from the south side of Chicago, he had no, you know, there was no special club that he belonged to. He just smashed the door in and was a member of the club. Um, and now he's kind of like a, a faithful member of the club and does all the pres ex-president's things. And now it's seen as kind of an iconic figure in American history. You got Donald Trump, who is the kind of next generation of someone who has no business being in the White House but is in the White House, given all of his past. Um, so looking at the Democratic field, 
It's wide open. Mm-hmm. It is. You know one thing that all these people have in common, including Obama, and you know, they all went to Ivy League schools. Well, well I guess that's yes, right. Uh, where did Wharton? You Wharton. can't remember <laughs> that uh, the president went to the University of Pennsylvania, yeah. Wharton School of Business. He's got a hell of a memory, a great IQ, the best words, and the best people. Um, but yeah, there. I mean, even to this day, even when you were talking about Barack Obama, it's sort of the first thing that comes to my mind about President Obama is, but wait, don't you remember how brilliant he is? Um, you know, it was one of the most distinguishing characteristics besides his gift of oratory was he's just a, a fantastic mind. Um, and so, you know, and, and, I, and, and, and that sort of common denominator of privilege in terms of the best universities in our nation providing our presidents maybe we really are going to break out in a in a way that no one can quite predict for who stands and wins in 2020 well ronald reagan um to john easton's point had a brand before he ran for president he had been governor but he also had been a movie star he went to eureka college so he was well, not no, that, that that's absolutely well he also was a pitch man for ge thank you pitch which man was for GE. huge for him so looking at that and looking at brands and colleges, who do you think has the best brand out there? Like, a, was the, Does Michael Bloomberg have the kind of brand that could, could electrify the Democratic field? Does um, I think Michelle Obama has, Obama has a great brand. Because I think about like someone like a Mitt Romney. He didn't have much of a brand, but he came in second place. Uh, the, the time before, so he was able to establish it. But he also had lots and lots and lots of money, which is how he was able to get the nomination. Well, he's also governor of, of Massachusetts as a Republican. Right, right, right. Which is also a brand. So uh, I want to key in the little guy, a little bit on the guy Beto O'Rourke, who has kind of a weird type of brand because he was able to raise so much money and almost take out someone like a Ted Cruz who was very unpopular. Let's, let's drill down on Beto O'Rourke. What do you think his chances are? Not... Very good, in my opinion, because uh, he has a, uh, a little bit of range. He's a little bit of a um, a rock star, but not not a rock star at a at a really high political level. I think it's sort of like a little bit of a localized rock star. The media is attracted to him, but I think that part you know part of his fundraising success was because of uh, the smaller small donations, small dollar donations, and how they've they've mastered the portal. Uh, from which to collect those small dollar donations across the country. Right now, the Act Blue is is the mechanism, but uh, they they really are a step above the Republicans in terms of how to um, get get that small dollar donation um, in in a in a general portal. And 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 I think that Beto O'Rourke was the first to truly capitalize on the sophistication of that system. So I, I just don't think that we should look at all that money raised as a reflection of the caliber of candidacy that he could bring nationwide. I just don't. I don't I don't have faith in this guy that he's got that kind of brand. So Adam, um, what they say about the Democrats versus the Republicans, the Democrats fall in love while the Democrat the Republicans fall in line. That's why I think Beto is such a unique figure because the, the voters, the left especially more so than Bernie Sanders, more so than Hillary Clinton, uh, he has the type of charisma that Barack Obama had, and their Democrats are falling in love with him. That's why I think he's the most one of the more intriguing candidates out there. Yeah, I think he's he's very intriguing. He's intriguing um, 
in another way. To me, he's intriguing in the way that Scott Brown was. Um, did I say the name right? right? Yes. Right, the, the, the senator yeah. from Massachusetts. We've so soon forgot. Yes. Who took over the seat once? Who's now by... ambassador to New Zealand, by the way? Right. It's exactly in that high-profile spot I expected. Right. To be. <laughs> um, I mean, the guy was pretty, and everybody knew his name for about half a minute. He won a special election to take over Ted Kennedy's seat. He lost uh, in his next election. I see O'Rourke in the has-been category of now ambassador to New Zealand, right. uh, Senator Brown. And, and here's part, part of the reason why, I think, to your point, Adam, is and, – and I think this could segue into the next question, which is what is it going to take for a, a candidate to break out or at least be considered in the top rung on issues? So Medicare for all, uh, immigration, and, and perhaps impeachment. That uh, may be coming as well. So how far do you have to go? So far, Beto O'Rourke has not gone very far on any of them, maybe immigration a little bit. But, you know, he's been pretty silent on Medicare for all, which a lot of the left and a lot of the lefty uh, politicians have gone all the way, like Bernie Sanders and others like him. So I, I, I don't, you know, what is the litmus test there on the left for a guy like Beto if he doesn't get over that hump and they expect him to, then maybe he doesn't get out of the gates. Okay, so the boss, Bruce Springsteen, said that he doesn't think there's any Democrats that could beat Donald Trump, which is hard for him because he's kind of, you know, he hates Trump, and he said it many times how much he hates Trump. Um, Adam, who would, is the boss right? And second, who would be the Democrat that would give Donald Trump the most trouble? I, I... I think that it's a very strong and courageous statement for Mr. Springsteen to make. I'm not sure it's true. I think they better hope it's not true. But as you take a look as a snapshot in time, it sure feels true right now. Um, I was most excited of all the names that you mentioned um, by uh, Oprah Winfrey, um, quite honestly. She has the star power. She has a lot of... Uh, storytelling, communication, uh, and just rapport with the American people. Does this qualify her to be president? No, it does not. Does it disqualify her? No, it does not. And in the age of the Trump presidency, it's more qualifying than disqualifying in any way. Um, There's always that question of desire and tenacity and all of the things that go into, including enormous self-sacrifice to, to try and become president of the United States. Um, I really think that she inspires people with great energy in maybe the same way that the stratum of Donald Trump does. Uh, whereas Michael Bloomberg, incredibly wealthy, incredibly smart, policy-oriented, has a deep political background, not only personally, but in supporting other politicians, um, he is a very formidable opponent, but he's kind of a Scrooge McDuck character to me, and I just don't see him having the sort of ability to capture the zeitgeist the way that Donald Trump has. I want to what say something you? real quick. Um, I think if you're stretching back to Richard Nixon, Richard Nixon was the last president to win based on a better resume. Nixon beat Humphrey. He had, a, he had been former vice president, and he won re-election. Uh, and I'm talking about for presidents who are n- not winning re-election, okay, or who, are, who have uh, won based on like if you're if you're an incumbent and you won, um, 
you won because you're an incumbent. But you think about Reagan versus Carter. Reagan was not seen as the guy with a deeper resume because Carter was the incumbent. You think of Carter versus Ford. Carter was seen as a complete outsider. You think of um, Bill Clinton versus uh, George Bush. Clinton was seen as a guy who had no resume, and Bush had all the resume. You think of um, Al Gore versus George W. Bush. Al Gore was seen as, you know, much deeper resume, much smarter character. You think about um, uh, Barack Obama versus John McCain. McCain, you know, had this deep resume, had been in Washington for a long time. Um, You think of uh, Donald Trump versus Hillary Clinton. Clinton had this deep, really deep qualifications. Each way, each time, it was the outsider who was better able to connect. So this is what, I, what I'm saying to you guys. Is I don't know if a deep resume matters. I think it's how you capture the zeitgeist of the American people and if you have a message that fits their frustrations. And um, I don't think it's going to be someone that we think is, well, like when Joe Biden says, I'm the most qualified presidential candidate. That seems to me to be the kiss of death. Um, but we'll see. Um, any other final thoughts on the 2020? It's early. It's early. It's very but early. It's but it's going to be fun. We need to we need to start this conversation now because mm-hmm. why not? Um, theory three: Die Hard. So I'm going to ask this open question to both of you: Is Die Hard a Christmas movie or not? So with you, John. There was enough Christmas um, stuff in that movie, particularly when he wrapped the terrorist around with uh, was it streamers or or red green tape, whatever that was, uh, that I'm going to say, yes, was it a, your classic traditional feel good, you know, weep at the end because of uh, a, a touching moment? No. I mean, I think he, he killed the terrorists, uh, but Christmas movie, I'm going to give it a yes. Yeah. I'm with Houston. Yes. So the reason this has come, comes up is my wife asked our good friend and who's been on the show, Gail Osterberg, her favorite Christmas movies. And she put on the list. Die Hard, and I was flabbergasted. I, I rewatched it, and that lady's so cool. How could she ever flabbergast you? She's awesome. Well, she's she's she, she thinks things in a deeper level. Doesn't than I she do. though? Um, I just don't think it is. I don't think it's the this true spirit of Christmas. With that the, that being the case, obviously I'm outvoted here, so I will accept defeat. Defeat in and but I I I, I accept defeat, with, but without really giving up. With that, what is your favorite Christmas movie or holiday movie outside of Die Hard? I'll, I'll go first. Um, as you might come to expect from me, this is going to be weird. Um, but uh, my children and I, okay, mostly me, uh, came to adore uh, the little-known straight-to-DVD movie, Elmo's Christmas. <laughs> and in Elmo's Christmas, John, wow. um, That's Kelly Ripa plays a uh, U.S. Postal Service letter carrier, and she's bringing she's bringing cards, she's bringing packages. There's a lot of singing. Um, and Is there a lot of Elmo? There's a lot of Elmo right. in Elmo's Christmas, and. I bought this uh, digitally and on DVD for a lot of friends with young children, and I recommend it to all of you to search it on Amazon, maybe also available on Apple iTunes, where, in a related story, you can also get the Fairy Theory podcast on demand. So, uh, Kelly Ripa, I mean, she's she's attractive. Oh, but, but, you know, the things that are attractive about Kelly Ripa, her energy, her comedic timing... 
And everything about her Great is special. And when you pair her up with Elmo, <laughs> boom! It's just it's magical. It's Christmas magic. No wonder it's And they favorite. also explore Hanukkah. There's a great little piece on Kwanzaa in there. It's sort of a multi-faith. multi-faith. There's something for everybody. Everything. Everything. Uh, John Eason, what's your favorite Christmas movie? I think that, uh, as we talked about with, when you have kids, I do think that you start to think slightly different. You're not watching Die Hard with them. Uh, especially young kids. I hope you're not. Uh, I so, but I you're, you're, you're conspicuously silent. <laughs> I mean, we watch it with Jack. All right, right. Uh, so I I thought about this and and what movies I have really enjoyed and 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 I sort of rewatched Home Alone. I mean, who hasn't seen Home Alone? And my kids absolutely. It's like their favorite movie. They've seen it about five or six times. We bought it and they I think they're still watching it. And Elf. Is is right there? I mean, right there. And which, and which elf is the one with with Will Ferrell? Will Ferrell. I mean, it's just. I mean, it's, and James Con. I mean, James Con is in that movie. It's fabulous. And then another one which also just made me howl throughout the movie is the Santa Claus with Tim Allen. <laughs> I mean, the guy cannot figure out why he's gaining all this weight. All you know, he's growing the white beard and. And there, it's a tearjerker at the end, too. So it's got the Christmas spirit. Every one of these do. And uh, to your point about a true Christmas spirit movie, yes, those three are tops. Well, the, the best Christmas movie of all time is clearly It's a Wonderful Life um, with Jim, Jim, James Stewart. Um, it is uh, something that used to be shown on television all the time. Uh, but that, you know, for me... I, I've gotten so many different columns out of It's a Wonderful Life. It was one of the subheads of, of this uh, Fury Theory podcast. Um, but it is it's the iconic Christmas holiday movie because, you know, it talks about what's really the, the can happen during the holidays is you, you know, you got all this pressure. You got all these things that you want to have a good time. And then you're like, God, this sucks. And and the stress gets to you, and it got to Jimmy Stewart. And but he, you know, had a chance to redeem himself, and um, it is really kind of one of the great things about that movie is you take pause and say, yeah, you know what, it's it's okay. Like you know, let's let's not lose sight of what this holiday season's all about, and don't get all tied up in all the presents and all the decorations. And if it's too stressful, just take a little break. Um, but anyway, I, I think that's a bit the best of the of the holiday movies. You know, we, we don't know what the hell's going to happen, and let's just kind of keep it all together and enjoy the holidays as much as we can. Watch good holiday movies, not bad ones. We can have a whole list for you if you want to watch them. And then maybe we should put a list on EFB of the movies that you shouldn't watch, you should stay away from. Linked below. Linked below. Um, with that. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Fear Theory Podcast, brought to you by EFB Advocacy. EFB means... Excellent for business. Yeah, baby.